Hi, I'm Shani Cooper, and you're listening to the Jewish Women Podcast, where we discuss biblical women and see what they can teach us about being a Jewish woman in this big, confusing world. Today we're discussing Tamar, daughter-in-law of Yehuda, mother of Mashiach. So Tamar's, the story of Yehuda and Tamar is mentioned in this past week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayeshev. And the most of Parsha's Vayeshev is devoted to the story of Yosef and the sale of Yosef um, and how, you know, the brothers, the brothers sold him. They goes down to Mitzrayim. He, you know, has his whole adventure in Mitzrayim. He becomes second to the king. So most of the Parsha is devoted to this tale. But seemingly randomly stuck in there in the middle is this whole story of Yehuda finding a wife, having children, and then this whole thing that happens with Tamar, which we're going to get into. So um, it's, you know, it's, we're going to explain why, but it is interesting, it is interesting to note that the Parsha begins with the story of Yosef, the brothers sell Yosef, they sell him to the Ishmaelim, who then, you know, take him down, he, he ends up down to Mitzrayim, and then right at that point where you, where Yosef goes down to Mitzrayim, right before the story gets into the whole thing that happens with the wife of Potiphar, we talk about Yehuda. So um, Yehuda the, the 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 commentaries explain that after the brother sold Yosef, Yehuda felt bad for his part in it. He realized that had he suggested that they just leave Yosef alone, then it could be that they would have. So he needs a little space. He runs away and he goes and he meets this guy Chira from Adulam, and he stays with Chira and he starts you know building up a um, you know a business of sorts with Chira, you know with sheep and all this. And then he um, he gets married. He marries this woman named Shua, and he has three sons: Er, Onan, and Shela. And Shua stops um, after Shela is born. Shua stops having kids. So then his sons grow up, and it's time for Er to get married. So Yehuda goes out and finds a wife for Er named Tamar. And Tamar was a very beautiful woman. And Er, when he meets her, you know they get married, but then he doesn't want to get her pregnant because he was afraid that um, her, you know, a pregnancy would mess up her good looks. Um, so Hashem, as a punishment, kills him. And then Yehuda gave Tamar to the second son, to, to Onain. Now, the, the idea behind that is that the, this, it was Yibum. Okay, Yibum, the idea of Yibum is that um, is, a, is a, the mitzvah where the second son has the opportunity to um, provide an heir for the first son. So, um, so Onain, by Onain marrying Tamar and then having a child with Tamar, their oldest child will then be considered the child of his older brother, Er. So, which is the very reason why Onain did not want to have a child. So he marries Tamar, but he doesn't want to get her pregnant either because he wants his own children. He doesn't want a child for Er. He wants all the children to be considered his. He's not interested in doing evil. So as a punishment, Onain also dies. So now there's only one, Yehuda only has one son left, Shela, who was a teenager at the time. And he was afraid, Yehuda was afraid, understandably so, to... Um, to give his youngest son to Tamar because she's, you know, a black widow of sorts. And she's, you know, everyone who marries her is just turning up dead and he doesn't want Shayla to die. So he decides, he, to, he tells Tamar, go back to your father's house. And when Shayla gets a little older and more mature, then they'd marry. But meanwhile, time passes. Shua, Yehuda's wife, Shua dies. Shayla gets older. And Tamar, meanwhile, is still stuck at her father's house. And it becomes clear to her that um, Yehuda has absolutely no intention of giving Shayla to her. So instead of going to Yehuda and confronting Yehuda about marrying Shayla, she covers her face and she sits in the road and 
the commentaries explain that it's the road where Avram's kever was and where he used to pitch his tent and he waits for, and she waits for Yehuda there. She just sits with her face covered and waits for Yehuda and Yehuda is passing by and he thinks Tamar is a zona. He thinks she's a prostitute. And the, 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 you know, the commentaries explain that the reason why he, um, he didn't recognize her the whole time, the whole night, he didn't recognize hers because when she was living in his house with his son, she was always very, very modest, very sneeze, and her face was always covered. And so he comes to her and, and she says to him, um, how are you going to pay me? So he says, I'll give you a sheep. So she says, okay, but you know, you don't have the sheep with you. So until you are able to bring me the sheep, I want some collateral. So give me your it's the the way the pasuk the the, the lashon of the pasuk right the language in the psukim is the the psil the chosim and the mate so the the commentaries explain there's different explanations as to what psil is but it's some kind of article of clothing either a hat or a robe or a belt and his signet ring is the chos, is a chosim is a signet ring and his mate is his stick so she asked for these three items right his, an article of clothing his signet ring and his stick and you know later she, uh, you know, he gets her pregnant and then she puts her widow clothing back on and then she goes back to her father's house. So meanwhile, though, Yehuda goes home. He sends his friend Chira with the sheep to, and to get his stuff back that he gave to her. But meanwhile, Tamar's disappeared because she's, you know, gone back to her father's house and he didn't know who she was. So three months later, Yehuda hears of Tamar's pregnancy and he gets very, very upset because she was supposed to wait for Shayla. Um, now, this seems to also indicate that he was eventually planning on giving Shayla to Tamar to marry, but you know he was upset that she didn't that she didn't wait. And also, so now since she's a Bas Kohen, you know her father was a Kohen, so he says that the punishment is when a when a Bas Kohen who is you know prostitutes herself, so the punishment is to burn her. So they take her to be burned and she's standing up there about to be burned and she calls out the father of my child is the owner of these things and she presents Yehuda's stick and his signet ring and his this article of clothing. So Yehuda sees this and he's very surprised and he says, I was wrong, don't burn her. And she goes home to her and she gives birth to twins and the the psukum go into great detail about exactly how they're born, which is interesting. And when they're born, one baby's arm comes out and the midwife ties a string around the baby's arm, but then the baby withdraws the arm and then the second baby comes out first so the baby whose arm came out first actually ended up being the second born not the first born so this is the story as it's told in the psukim right after this right after the birth of the twins whose name was Peretz and Zerach so then the story goes right back to Yehuda and to the I'm sorry the story goes right back to Yosef and to the whole thing what happens with Yosef in the house of Potiphar so it's a very interesting story Okay, the, there's a Medrash. The Medrash explains the placement of the story. Why is it that this is randomly placed inside the story of Yosef? So the Medrash says that the story of Yehuda comes right after Yosef gets sold to Potiphar down in Mitzrayim. And then Yehuda goes and finds a wife. And then the story continues. And the Medrash says, if you look at what's going on here, you look at all of the different, uh, Yaakov and his sons and all of what was happening, right? Yaakov and Reuven were mourning the loss of Yosef. Yosef was busy being sold and trying to survive. Yehuda's looking for a wife. Everyone's busy in their own life, doing their own thing. And Hashem, what is Hashem doing? Hashem is busy creating the light of Mashiach, right? Yosef going down to Mitzrayim, it was the beginning of the first Gullus, it was the beginning of the first exile of Klal Yisrael, was Yosef going down to Mitzrayim. 
And Yehuda finding a wife was the beginning of the birth of Mashiach. And the Yefei Toar, which is, a, which is a commentary on the Medrash, says that the Medrash is explaining this connection between the story of Yehuda and the story of Yosef. So we're, because, because Yosef is the first Shibud, it's the first, it's the first exile, the first Golos, the first exile, the first um, enslavement of the people. And then already, even before the first enslavement of Klai Yisrael, starting, Hashem is preparing the birth of the last Geula, the last Rezimer, which is the union of Yehuda and Tamar. So while everyone else has his own plans and everyone else is making their own Cheshbonos, Hashem is busy with his own plans for the ultimate the ultimate Geula. So so ultimately you see that the story of Yehuda and Tamar, the story of Tamar is the story of the beginnings of Mashiach. So when Tamar was chosen by Yehuda to marry his eldest son heir, Tamar herself was very excited to be part of a union that she knew through Ruach HaKodesh, through divine intervention, would produce the Malchus of Klai Yisrael, that would produce the um, the line of kings. Um, it's not 100% clear if she understood that these were going to be the final line of kings, but she did understand. She did know that um, this was that you know her descend the, the descendants of Yehuda and his oldest son Er was going to be. They were going to be the ones to produce the kings of. Klai Yisrael of the Jewish people, and she really, really wanted to be a part of that. So when Yehuda selected her to be Er's wife, she was very, very excited. And the Al Sheikh explains that when Er died, she was willing to marry Onan because with Yibum the child would be considered Er's, and then that means that there's still a possibility that the Malchus, the royalty, could still come from her. Right, because she knew that it had to come either from Er or from Yehuda. But then once Onan died without getting her pregnant, so then she didn't really want to marry Shayla because marrying Shayla would be doing Yibum for Onan, not Er. Right? It doesn't it's not it it only works on the the sibling immediately above that sibling, not on all of the previous siblings. So Onan, so the, the birth order was Er, Onan, Shela. So Onan marrying Tamar would have been Yibum for Er, and then Shela marrying Tamar would have been Yibum for Onan. So she wasn't interested in doing Yibum for Onan, although she did, you know, she did want to do the mitzvah of Yibum, but she also really, really wanted to be part of the, this, this line of royalty. So she that's that's part of the reason why she didn't push it when she went home and then Yehuda didn't give Shayla to her right away. Like she could have gone after she realized that Yehuda wasn't giving Shayla to her. She the if you look through the the story, you see that she didn't confront Yehuda about Shayla. She went about this whole roundabout way of trying to get Yehuda to sleep with her. So it's the reason why she so according to the Al Sheikh, the reason why she didn't push this specific issue is because she she wanted a child from Er or from Yehuda. So once Shayla, once that wasn't an option, and she saw that the whole thing just wasn't moving, so then she went straight for Yehuda. So this way she could also, you know, she could go straight for um, the source and... Um, then, you know, she can also, you know, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky explains um, that... Oh, no, sorry, I'm sorry. The Alshech also explains that the... Um, she was also hoping that by marrying Yehuda, that their their child, or by having a child with Yehuda, that child would then be a kiyom, right? It would be it would be an everlasting um, descendant for both Onan and Er, 
right? Because she's going back to the source. She's going by going back to their father to have a child. Then she's also, you know, all of his children then become, you know, memorialized in this child. Okay. So the, the Alshech, the Alshech goes on to explain why did she specifically ask for the three items that she did for the signet ring, this article of clothing and the stick. And he explains that she was hinting to Yehuda why she wanted to be with him, that she wanted a royal, she wanted a Malchus of Kedusha. She wanted, you know, um, a, a, kingdom of holiness and the stick represents the staff of of royalty and the signet ring represents the holiness of the body which is the bris right the the um the bris mila which is you know like the the which is how the psukim explain it right on your bris that you consecrated with your flesh this is talking about the bris mila so that's what she was she was hinting to with the signet ring and the the article of clothing represents, which is called a psil in the psukim. Okay, psil is also another way of saying string, and this represents the mitzvah of tzitzis, which represents all of the 613 mitzvos, and you know, because the if you the, the word tzitzis, the gematria of the word tzitzis, the numerical value of the word tzitzis is 600, plus you have eight strings and five knots, and um, which equals 613, so it represents the 613 mitzvos, which is, you know, one, you know, one of these you know, cute things. It's not. It's not a reason why people wear tzitzis, but it is like a cute um, hints to the, a reason. Okay, and she was telling him she wants to build a malchus of Torah and kedusha. She wants to build a kingdom of holiness and of Torah and of closeness to Hashem. And this is what she was hinting when she asked for all of these three things. Now, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky explains. He he also explains the story a little bit, and he says that. Um, the, you know, why is it that she, the, the reason why she had twins is because one of the twins was for Er and one of the twins was for Onan. Peretz, right, the, the two twins were Peretz and Zerach. Zerach was the one whose hands came out first and then went back in, and then Peretz ended up being the firstborn. So Peretz was for Er, he was a, to memorialize Er, and then Zerach was to memorialize Onan. And um, the the Yefei Toar and the Matnas Kahuna explain the Medrash. Why the Pasuk says that she sat by the Pesach Enayim. The, the, right, the Pesukim say that when she went to go wait for Yehuda, she sat by the side of the road. And the, and, but the way that the Pesukim call it, it calls Pesach Enayim, which literally means the opening of the eyes. And it's an interesting it's an interesting language to use for the side of the road, is the opening of the eyes. It's not usually a language that you hear associated with sitting by the side of the road. But the Medrash explains that the the um, she was turning her eyes to Hashem, the opening from to where all eyes turn, which is the Shari Shamayim, the gates of heaven. And she was davening that she should not return empty-handed. So it wasn't just simply that she just sat by the side of the road. It was also that she was making a, she was praying that she, you know, she had, she had very, very good intentions and she was praying that, that Hashem should help her and that she should, she should be worthy of being part of this dynasty. And the Bracious Rabbah explains Yehuda's uncharacteristic behavior because Yehuda was a very big tzaddik and so it doesn't seem like turning to a prostitute is something that he normally would have done and in fact he wouldn't have done it and the the medrash says that the reason why he you know the medrash explains this behavior and the reason why he turned to a prostitute is he was not actually planning she was sitting on the side of the road with her face covered and he assumed she was a prostitute and he was going to just pass her by he was not interested in it but then a malach hashem sent a, a malach an angel who was in control of desires 
there's, you know, there's angels in control of all the different things on this earth. So Hashem sent a Malach, you know, one of the angels that's in control of our physical desires. And the Malach whispered in his ear and said, if you pass by, then where are all the kings and the redeemers going to come from? And so he didn't know exactly what that meant, but he did understand that this means that he should turn to this woman. So he went and he, um, and, but, but the whole, the whole union didn't come out of his base desires or because he suddenly wanted to take out, you know, to do a prostitute whatever, for whatever reason. It came because he, um, you know, he had this angel whispering in his ear that this is where the, the kings and the redeemers of, you, you know, of the nation is going to come from. So, and so she's sitting there praying and he's sitting there being, you know, pushed to, um, by a, by an angel. And, um, you see like you're, you're, if you, if you look at the full picture, you're beginning to get a full picture of exactly what's going on here, which is that this whole entire thing was Hashem orchestrating the events in the, such a way that Mashiach should be born. And if Yaakov Kamenetsky says something beautiful, a beautiful explanation about the way the twins were born, right? You usually, you don't see, um, in many places in the Torah, that, you know, where the Torah describes the, the birth, right? You don't usually, um, you don't usually get that much detail about exactly what goes on as, you know, the Shvatsim were born or as any, anyone else was born. But if you look, the, but here, the Torah goes through great detail. One stuck his hand out, then he pulled his hand in, and then the second one came out first. And it's very, it's very interesting. So he explains why is it that, um, that she had the, the twins were born the, the way that they were is because he says this is how Mashiach is going to come. That first you're going to see there's going to be a zricha, there's going to be a light that's going to make us think that Mashiach is here, right? There's going to be where everyone's going to think this is the Yeshua, this is the final salvation, this is it, we're here. But then everything's going to go away, and then he's going to pull back, and it's going to be darkness again. But then Mashiach is going to come from a totally different place where we didn't even expect it in the first place. That's why he's called Zer- Peretz and Zerach, right? Zerach was the one who stuck his hand out first because there's going to be that initial zricha. Zricha means like a shining, like a like a big light. And then, but but really the actual final salvation is going to come from a completely different place that nobody expects. And he says also going back to the original Medrash about Hashem making plans and, you know, about everyone is doing their own thing and Hashem is making grand plans. He says that this is what Chazal meant in this Medrash, that Mashiach can come in any way, not necessarily from our own actions, meaning we do our thing and then Hashem brings Mashiach maybe because of our actions or maybe not meaning it's we it's we can't we can't have that cheshbon, right? Everyone says you have to do this and this and that to bring Mashiach. Ultimately, we have no idea what what is going to bring Mashiach because Hashem is going to bring Mashiach in whatever way He decides. So we just have to do what we are meant to do, and then Hashem will bring Mashiach, however He brings Mashiach. So. So we have to realize that Hashem is in control and Hashem has a plan. Now, Tamar, in this whole story, you have Yehuda, you have Tamar, and then, you know, also at the same time, you have this stuff going on with Yosef and you have Yaakov and Reuven and all the other Shvatim. But you see, if you see in this whole story, Tamar was the only one who was aware of what was going on right at this present time. That is not to say that the Yaakov and the Shvatim weren't aware of it in a general sense, but Tamar was the only one who at this at this moment actually like the actions that she did were actually to be part of this. She wants she realized she recognized the fact that Hashem was um, was was 
creating the the Mashiach, I don't know Mashiach, but she recognized that Hashem was creating the kings, the future kings of Klai Israel, and this is something that she desperately wanted to be a part of. So she prayed and she davened and she positioned herself in a place where it could happen. But she did not call out or try to entice Yehuda to her in any way. She didn't do anything. She just she put herself in a situation where Hashem, if Hashem decides to, then he can make it happen. But she didn't try to push it. She didn't try to force it. She just did what she had to do. And in and later on, right, you see that later on when she was about to be burned, she's literally about to be burned at the stake. And she could have saved herself by calling out Yehuda and telling Yehuda that he was the, um, you know, you're the father of my child. But she didn't do that. She did it in a roundabout way so only Yehuda would know. And she did this so as not to embarrass him. And she could have, and, and she was taking a very big risk here because Yehuda could not have realized or he could have, you know, um, he could have killed her anyway, or he could have, you know, not been paying attention. There could have been any number of things that could have happened where she would have been burned at the stake anyway. And for someone who was, who went so out of her way to be, to, to orchestrate events so that she can be part of the kings, the future kings of Israel, it seems like she was taking a very big risk by, by not declaring herself or declaring Yehuda as the father right away. But she, but this is, you know, the, the, this is proof that she, she knew that it's not, the Mashiach is not going to, the Geula is not going to come through something like humiliating Yehuda in public. She didn't, you know, sitting, you, you can make an argument, so how, how, how is it that you that Mashiach would come from her lack of tzniyas by sitting on the side of the road? Because her reasoning was is that sitting on the side of the road, first of all, she was covered, her face was covered, and second of all, she didn't call out to him or coerce him to come in any way, and also because this was just about her overcoming her own personal midos, it wasn't about humiliating someone else. But when it came to Yehuda and it came to, to embarrassing Yehuda in public, this is something that she knew was absolutely not something she wanted to be a part of, even if it meant that all of her carefully laid plans would disappear. So she, she, she stayed silent when it came time to it because she realized that ultimately Hashem is in charge, that ultimately it came down to what Hashem had planned. And if Hashem wanted her involved, then he'd involve her. And that you have to do a certain amount of ishtados, right? You have to put forth a certain amount of effort, but then at a certain point, you have to let go and you have to realize that Hashem is the one who is in charge and Hashem is the one who runs our lives. And I think that, you know, the ultimate lesson here is that we make plans in our lives but in the end, we have to realize that Hashem's plan is the only one that's going to endure. Our job is to do what we have to do and then leave the rest to Hashem, whether it's something trivial or something as great as bringing Mashiach. But the lesson is the same. We don't have to be Hashem, right? We don't have to be God. Let God be God. Let Hashem do what he's going to do. You just do your job and let Hashem take care of the rest. Thank you.